Hello and welcome to Open School of Business. Today I would like to take a time to thank everyone who has been listening to us over 25 episodes and uh, I would like to invite you to our website www.openschoolofbusiness.com where you can sign up for more information and start participating in live webinars that I'm planning around the business topics. And what is great about it is you can sign up and also uh, submit your own topics that you would be interested in discussing and posting questions. So please uh, go over to openschoolofbusiness.com and sign up for more information. Today I have the honor of introducing Joy Riley, a very special person for me um, because we have worked together and she has been instrumental in my early career in helping develop my skills in project management and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, Joy Riley uh, is a visionary leader, book author, an accredited life coach and just a really awesome person. Joy started her career many years ago in the change management practice of Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture. I met Joy after she had moved to the International Monetary Fund, where she has served as an assistant to a director, a deputy division chief, and a program manager. And I was very lucky to have had worked under her leadership and see her build uh, what, in my opinion, is a world-class PMO. Oh, you're very kind, Anar. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. I would like to start off um, uh, by asking you what made you choose your career direction in the early days? <laughs> well, um, I'd like to say that I had laser focus on a particular direction, but like so many of us, I feel like my career evolved more organically over the years. But, you know, as they say, things happen for a reason, so maybe not. Um, my undergraduate degree was in communication with a focus on mass media. And right out of college, I interned with a major network television station working in their press office. <clears throat> However, I quickly realized television was not for me. And I decided I'd really like to learn how organizations communicate with each other internationally. Um, this was some time ago, I fully admit, in the mid-80s, when companies were moving to word processors, and they were also just starting to use what they called electronic document transfer, which is ultimately evolved to the email we use today. I went on to get a master's degree in organizational and international communication, where I ended up writing my master's thesis on user problems with international information systems. Um, I was very fortunate to have a fantastic mentor and thesis advisor in graduate school who put me in touch with a contact of his uh, at an international chemical company that was, that was local, um, but headquartered in the UK. Uh, I was hired, fortunately, to collect my data across the US, the UK, and Europe. And so it was sort of a win-win for both of us because I got a master's thesis out of the project and they got some insight into why they were having so much trouble communicating electronically. This is the work, the point of this story is that this is the work that led me to an interview at Anderson um, when I got out of school and I started their change management practice. I never had a vision of working for a big six, so this was not some big strategy that I had, uh, big six at the time. 
Um, but given the work that I'd done and my interests, it was an excellent fit for it. it turned out to be an excellent fit for me. So as my career grew over the years through Anderson and I became a manager, my focus shifted to project management and ultimately program management. And I sincerely grew to love coordinating and managing all the aspects of multifaceted projects across what were really quite often very complex organizations. I am very uh, happy today to discuss both of these organizations because I worked there at some point um, in my life and I loved it there. And I want uh, for you to share uh, your point of view, uh, what was the best thing about working at Anderson, uh, which is now Accenture uh, and ultimately the IMF? That's a big question. <laughs> um, I think both organizations had some similarities, but also some stark differences. Um, although Anderson was, is uh, an American company headquartered in the US, it is an international firm. Uh, and I was lucky in both organizations to work with talented, creative people from all over the world. And I think that was the most exciting thing to me was to have exposure to so many different cultures and so many different um, uh, beliefs um, and, and skill sets. Anderson was a great place to grow up professionally due to the education and quality of experience that I got there. The training offered was, in my experience, just second to none. There was a strategy, a prototype, a toolkit available for any work we did, and a vast majority of resources, colleagues who had done the work before to mentor you, teach you, uh, and support you. So the work we did was cutting edge and the organizations in which we worked, at least in my experience, were grateful for our knowledge and practices. And over the nine years I was there, I worked on at least 15 different projects across about 10 different states and also in Europe. So the variety of work was fantastic. Um, I was able to work in the manufacturing and retail, finance, healthcare, and government industries. So I've got a ton of experience, really quality experience and a lot of exposure. So, you know, as all good things eventually come to an end, I chose to leave Anderson for personal reasons. I had eight years full-time on the road. Um, I was on multiple planes each week in multiple cities. Most weekends I was able to come home, but not always. And I had just met and married my husband and we didn't think this was how a newly married couple who wanted to start a family really wanted to live. A lot of people made it work, um, but it just wasn't, it wasn't for us. So um, the projects we worked on were exceptionally complex and exhausting. And I was getting weary from living uh, basically a nomadic existence. Um, my father used to call me a migratory worker. Um, so I was just ready to move on. So from there, um, I went to the IMF and it was the first time I'd really worked internally to an operation. I'd always been a consultant. So the difference there was the pace for my experience was slower and more predictable, which allowed me to better balance my life. Um, I no longer traveled with the exception of an occasional conference. However, again, I was able to hold multiple positions across multiple departments over the 22 years I was there. So from business process redesign to developing and implementing project management standards and best practices, and going on to establish the IT program office, as you mentioned earlier, um, 
you know, I was able to have a lot of variety in my work there as well. So as part of that program management office, um, I was also involved in helping to modernize the practices around planning and World Bank and IMF annual and spring meetings, which was a huge job. And once the PMO was established and up and running, I went on to help run the general services division where we managed all of multimedia, travel, hospitality and food services, and mail and courier services for the fund. Ultimately, I went on to support the department director and I finished my career at the IMF running the program office for a very large fund-wide project, actually the largest in my career. So that was uh, just an amazing experience and working with some fantastic and highly skilled people. Yeah, I think it is amazing from the whole variety and the depth uh, of all the experiences that you acquired, uh, just to say that uh, it has been a fascinating journey. Um, and always people are attracted to big organizations because of all that variety that is there and uh, people can move from one department to another and really develop different types of skills. But it also comes with a complexity. And uh, I have always admired your composure and courage to lead in complex environments. So what's your secret um, and the philosophy that served you uh, well all these years? I never started out with a philosophy, but the secret was that you learn as you grow in your career how to handle more complex situations as you mature professionally. So as most of the work I've done involved change, and change is typically very stressful for most people and disrupted to business operations, I've witnessed significant fear and turmoil among some leaders and their employees. People ask themselves, am I really doing the right thing to improve my operation or my bottom line? Am I going about this transformation the right way? Is this gonna work? You know, often will I lose my job? These are all such familiar questions that individuals ask themselves as they follow a typical change curve. So managers need to provide reassurance, a calm during their storm, be resilient, involve stakeholders, and remember all problems have a solution. Almost all problems have a solution, but you do always have options. And I think people forget sometimes when they get stuck in a situation that they do have options. So as a leader of change, People are looking to you for reassurance and calm. When things get stressful, you know, if the leader panics or loses their composure, everyone's going to panic and lose their composure. It's, it's sort of like being on a particularly turbulent flight. You know, if the flight attendants panic, so would you. So as a change leader, I not only coordinated all of the components of a change effort, I often served as a confidant and really quasi-therapist. Um, I sometimes had stressed clients coming to me yelling, uh, and my taking a similar tone would only escalate a situation uh, and, and probably most likely land me without a job. So, um, you know, providing reassurance and calm was key in many situations. I also think resilience uh, is a very important component of a successful leader. Um, being able to change direction if something isn't working and being able to admit that not every strategy or plan 
is without flaws. Also important is recognizing, accepting that someone else might have a better idea than you. I read a book um, called Managing at the Speed of Change, How Resilient Managers Succeed and Prosper Where Others Fail, back in the 90s. It was written by Daryl Connor, and he did a great job writing about resilience. One of the things um, that stuck with me was the analogy that people have chips, little tickets, in their lives. And no one can dedicate 100% of their chits or tickets to any one thing all the time. No one is ever able to dedicate 100% of their time and effort to work. Um, some chits have to go to family, life events, or what are, you know, what are aspects, things that are going on in your life at the time. So people's resilience at work will shift depending on you know, what's currently happening in their lives. I think successful leaders have to be aware of that and, and work around it. Um, it's also, in my experience, helpful to, have, helpful to have every stakeholder involved in any type of change effort. Um, some believe that stakeholders are directors or managers, and they are, uh, but I've always approached projects with the realization that anyone touched or affected by the project is the stakeholder. So communication with all stakeholders is crucial to the success of a business, uh, a project resulting in business change because those stakeholders are the ones that are gonna live that change and they're the ones that are gonna make it successful. So if stakeholders are on board with the work, it makes it much less complex and easier to move forward. I think it's well worth the management investment um, to spend time informing and educating stakeholders at every level. So when everyone's on board, it doesn't take much courage actually to move forward. Most of the projects uh, on which I worked were large and, and, and multifaceted. Being human, I did sometimes lose my composure and I did question myself. However, I did try to do it in the privacy of my own office or with a close and trusted colleague or at home in the evening. I can say I did get irritated often, um, but seriously lost it one time in a meeting when it dawned on me that I had been manipulated and lied to and what could potentially have been a significant financial cost to the organization. So due to my outburst, the problem was quickly solved. However, I've always regretted exposing my anger. I never regretted what I said, but how I said said it. So potentially, uh, I could have achieved the same outcome with a better approach. One last point I want to make on this, this question or this topic is I always try to keep in mind that, as I said earlier, every business problem has a solution. And although I made plenty of mistakes, I never made a mistake so big that it couldn't be fixed. Always ask for help when you need it. Um, there's no shame in asking for help and you'll learn so much from it. I learned so much more from my mistakes than I learned from my successes moving forward in my career. And um, I think what you were saying that uh, a lot of these complexities are involved with people um, and the stakeholders of the project um, and, and everyone who touches the project. So as a people manager, uh, what was the key factor in having an effective team in place? Because uh, stakeholder management 
uh, is complex enough, but uh, management of your own team is even more important and, and um, the stakes are really high. Right. Um, that's a good question. I, um, from my experience, um, I think there are two key factors in putting an effective team together. First, people tend to hire people just like themselves. And I think that's a mistake with the exception of, you know, everybody wants a strong work ethic. Bringing different perspectives and skill sets to bear on a team is what makes it highly functional. I always tried to bring a mix of quality skill sets together that would complement each other. I knew I knew my weaknesses and I wanted people that could um, provide or, or plug the holes that I couldn't fill. So I wanted skill sets that could complement each other, teach each other, um, obviously respect each other, and really allow us to provide the best service to the organization that we could. I wanted diversity on my teams, especially related to culture, gender, and age. I love the fresh perspective and ideas that young employees bring to a team and the experience that others bring. So I didn't particularly care for working with a team of all women or a team of all men um, because then you lost the variety of perspective and approach. Um, so to be able to serve at least the IMF, global representation was a top priority and culture took a front seat on my teams. Um, as you know, one of the teams I had in the PMO, I, I was an American, I had a, a Chinese, I had uh, an African man, I had, um, you were from Kazakhstan. Um, we had a broad representation as best we could um, in serving the IMF. The second thing I look at in putting teams together uh, is quality of experience. The PMO practice at the um, Corporate Executive Board did a study several years ago on what makes an effective project manager. And what they discovered was something that I, I felt like I already knew, but I, I didn't have the data to, to prove it. So what they discovered was that neither years of experience nor professional certifications had any bearing on how effective a project manager is. The key factor was quality of experience. So you could have a project manager with five years of quality experience who potentially outperforms a manager with 20 years of poor experience. So it was always key to me to really, when I looked at a resume, to look at the quality of the experience that the program manager has had. And then through questioning them, I could understand better what they, what they really did and how they, how they really performed. So those were the two key factors, um, uh, hiring people with different perspectives and looking at quality of experience. Uh, yes, I, I think those are really excellent, especially I loved about um, the quality of experience um, because I think hiring is a, a very difficult task and uh, unless you worked with someone is very hard to judge. Um, and it's really important advice, I think, on what kind of, questions, for example, can reveal those um, KPIs for the project. Um, right. And, and following up with references is key also, because that really helps you better understand what their resume truly means. Right. Um, and also, I have a, um, uh, another question about the 
uh, quality of experience and how do you assess it as a hiring manager? Um, how do you see the resumes that have um, multi-passionate um, or even just uh, very, um, very different uh, skill set and different experiences uh, kind of jumbled all together and uh, not necessarily um, with one direction in mind? Okay, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, I think if you look, there's two ways to look at these resumes. If you look at a resume and you see that someone has moved around and never kept a job more than two years, if it, it raises a red flag, but if the positions that that person has held have built on themselves and they've taken a trajectory where they are um, developing a specific skill set, I think that's certainly preferable to a resume where someone has moved around every year or two, the jobs are not um, really related. What that tells me is that person potentially or typically um, doesn't really have a focus and they don't have depth in any one area. They may have a lot of breadth, but they don't have any depth and they haven't been able to, to really dive in and develop a strong skill set. So that would be really a red flag for me. Uh, yes. And I think that's why a lot of uh, career coaches, especially the reason why I brought it up is a lot of the audience are the entrepreneurs and they tend to have um, a bit of a, a mismatch resumes. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes the advisors would say, have the professional resume separate from your entrepreneurial resume, let's say, because the businesses you started and things that you've done might not be directly related to your profession. Right. Um, if, if I see a, a completely disjointed resume, I would probably set it aside. Right. And, and it's probably true for, you know, most of the people, um, especially when you're doing a project and you want uh, a very focused experience there. Exactly. Um, Yes, and all uh, in your career, um, what was the best advice that uh, you have received from your mentors um, and coaches? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm glad you asked that, Anar. I have been so fortunate in my career to have some wonderful mentors. Um, I got several pieces of advice that I viewed as, as pearls of wisdom. Very, very early on when I was working on my master's thesis, um, it had been accepted to be presented at a conference, and I referred to myself as lucky one day to my advisor. And I got told, Joy, you make your own luck. You've worked hard to get where you are. So I think, I think you do make your own luck, and I think that you can be fortunate in your career as long as you're willing to work exceptionally hard. Um, one of the partners for whom I worked at Anderson told me that there are three things in life that have to remain top priorities to remain successful. One is your career, two is your family, and three is whatever is especially important to you and not necessarily in that order. Um, the third thing could be, you know, your health and fitness, a hobby, your spirituality, you know, whatever that third thing is that's important to you. But those three things have to remain your top, top priorities to ensure success. 
So like my analogy with chits or little tickets, the three will shift in relation to which comes first, second, and third as life shifts. For example, you know, if you have a life event, the birth of a child, a wedding, you know, your career is not going to come first for a period of time. That new baby has to come first for a period of time. So, you know, things shift, but those three things need to, to stay in, in the top always. I also got some very good advice from a mentor at the IMF who told me never stay in any one job more than five years. Stay in the organization if you're happy there, but change jobs because, you know, sameness can be comfortable, but most humans thrive on variety. So changing jobs allows you to grow, learn new skills and approaches, and really prevent you from stagnating in a position that's become somewhat rote to you. And I think the last piece of advice that I'd like to share is one I got from another boss at the IMF. And that was always remember the big picture and the greater purpose to which you're contributing. Uh, I always felt it was easy to get caught up in the day-to-day minutia of a job and forget that you're supporting a greater good. And there was a really good story that he told um, about John Kennedy. And he said, um, during a visit to the NASA Space Center in about 1962, President John Kennedy noticed a custodian carrying a broom. And he interrupted his tour. He walked over to the man and he said, hi, I'm Jack Kennedy, what are you doing? The man said, well, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. Um, To most people, you know, this custodian was cleaning the building, but in the larger story unfolding around him, he was helping to make history. So the point is, you know, no matter how large or small your role, you're contributing to the larger story unfolding in your life, your business, in your organization. So when your entire team embraces that type of attitude and belief system, amazing things can happen. So from my personal perspective, I loved that when I really thought about it, when I was at the IMF, I could say that I was contributing to promoting international financial stability, monetary cooperation. I was facilitating international trade. I was promoting employment and sustainable economic growth. And I was helping to reduce global poverty across 189 member countries. So how amazing is that? I mean, even though I wasn't an economist and I didn't contribute to the core work of the fund, I was supporting those economists who do through providing technology, uh, the media outlets that they needed to communicate internationally, uh, you know, and multiple other things, contributing to the to being able to um, pull off the World Bank and IMF annual meetings. Um, it was it was a huge. Well, it was just a huge career booster when I sat back and thought about the work of that organization. So I think. Um... Everyone who was listening to this story uh, must have felt that warmth in their hearts and just lit up um, because of being able to connect to a greater cause. Yeah. Um, and no matter how small or how um, normal your job or business is, it helps uh, to do so much more. Right. Um, like Never even with this conversation, it seems like we're just having a conversation, um, but we could be literally inspiring and changing a lot of people's lives. 
Um, I hope so. I, I mean, my, what I can say here is just never lose sight of the big picture. And when you do get caught up in the day-to-day -day and the tiny little details, step back, take a deep breath, and always remember the big picture. Yes, uh, and I think uh, for us women, uh, there's another big picture just by us being a woman and identifying um, with it. And uh, it kind of puts a little bit more weight on your career because of that, because uh, you're representing women mm -hmm. and um, you're almost responsible for, with your career to advance uh, so that you're, you feel that responsibility in front of other women who didn't have that opportunity when they, when they grew up and, and they uh, went to workforce uh, mm -hmm. or m more likely uh, didn't have the opportunity to work mm -hmm. or advance. So uh, I think sometimes being a minority uh, or being a woman uh, has uh, even more uh, weight on the person and uh, that's why whenever I have women on the podcast I ask them uh, about their opinion about what's holding back women still these days from advancing in their careers that's a big question there's a lot of uh, research out there one of the things um, I actually just read recently on on lean in was um, over the last five years, the number of women in senior leadership has grown, but still um, women continue to be underrepresented at every level. So what I learned was that while women make up about 48% of the entry level positions in, corporate, in the corporate pipeline, they make up only 21% in the C-suite. So CIOs, CFOs, whatever, as, as, the career path goes higher, the number of women go lower. So the same research showed that in reality, the biggest obstacle that women face is the first step up to manager, or what they call the broken rung. So this broken rung results in more women getting stuck at the entry level and fewer women becoming managers. So as a result, there are significantly fewer women in advance, advancing to higher levels. Um, so to get gender parity across the entire pipeline, companies are gonna to have to fix this broken rung. Um, and uh, in your opinion, how do you think it can be addressed? Well, I th the article went on to say that the case for fixing the broken rung is, is really quite powerful. If women are promoted and hired to first level manager at the same rates as men, um, we'll add 1 million more women to management in corporate America over the next five years and we'll set off a chain reaction that will eventually lead to parity across the entire pipeline. Um, but what the companies need to do to fix that broken rung is set a goal for getting more women to first level management. They need to require diverse slates for hiring and promotion, so more diversity in their hiring practices. Um, they need to put evaluators through unconscious bias training and they need to establish clear evaluation criteria. Um, and more women basically need to be in that pipeline for the step up to manager. Um, personally, I also think that as this broken rung is fixed, pay inequities need to be balanced between men and, men and women, not only as the, as the rung is fixed,
but as women are brought into organization at the first level, their pay needs to match those, those of men. So, you know, it's well known historically that men in the U.S. have held positions of power. And I go back to my earlier point that people hire like people, which perpetuates itself. So I think there has to be a hiring strategy because, you know, if you look at the statistics of women coming out of college right now, there are more women getting college degrees than there are men. So, but, but the hiring paradigm is not caught up with that. So that's, that's going to have to shift. So also based on my experience and working with other women, and in my opinion, the advancement of women to management positions is more complicated, really, than just a promotion. Um, just as women's careers have advanced over the last five years, so has the support that some working mothers have received. However, and I'm basing this on my very unscientific observations and discussions with other mothers, um, the majority of responsibility for childcare still falls on the mom. And I think working mothers walk a tightrope every day. Uh, a very wise colleague once told me that the success of a working mother depends on three variables. One is the understanding of her supervisor. Um, two is the amount of support she receives from her spouse or partner, if she even has one. And three is the quality of her daycare. So when all three of these aspects are balanced and working well, then a working mom can be quite successful. But if any of these three variables shift, she can be knocked out of her tightrope at a moment's notice very easily. Um, and it's, it's, it's a real balancing act for working mothers. Um, and I think balance means different things to different people. Uh, and individuals need to do what's right for them. Um, I know I personally chose to pass up a couple of promotion opportunities after I had children because I felt like I was at capacity. And I think there's no question that women can have it all, but still in this day and age, it's, it's more challenging for women to have it all at one time. And, and that's just my personal experience. Right. And I think uh, it resonates with a lot of women uh, because of uh, there's a cultural shift in, in terms of uh, fall of in terms of the child care falling on the mom mostly mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's also further develops the stigma against the women even not moms at workplace uh, saying, well exactly and you, know. you you have to you have to look at women in entry-level positions that have children and and you have to stop and think you know, daycare is very, very expensive. And so is commuting. And so are, you know, clothes that you need for work. So entry level positions don't always, you know, certainly don't, excuse me, don't pay the top salaries. So if you add up the cost of what it, what it takes to go to work, does that salary really exceed what the, what the woman is expending in just being able to get to work? So you see some women dropping out of the workforce because it's not cost effective for them. Right. And uh, I think it also comes back to the uh, topic of negotiation. And mm -hmm. uh, since you have been in the corporate world for so long, I'm sure you can give us um, uh, a few tips on how to negotiate your time and salary. Uh, because a lot of times, uh, 
corporations do make decisions to promote women and they don't um, invest into their salaries as much as uh, they would if it would uh, if they would promote a man. Well, so, I can tell you I can tell you two stories. They're they're a little bit different, but two stories. When I first started out of graduate school, I went into an interview, and they offered me a salary, and it was one thousand dollars below what. I wanted my annual starting salary to be. And so the man that was interviewing me said, I said, well, I'd, I'd really like a thousand dollars more. And he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not in a position to offer that to you. I'll have to go through our human resources department and get that position. And it, it might take some time. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll wait. And he looked right at me and he said, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just talk to them. I, I can do it for you. So it's all about standing firm with what you, what goals you've set for yourself. And it's also about not just getting what you want, but understanding the compensation package in that organization and making sure you're not asking for something that's unreasonable, um, but something that's in line with um, the amount of salary that a man is making at your same, same entry level. The other thing I did as far as balancing and being able to, to keep up with work and home was to, um, the organization, one of the organizations which I worked offered a um, compressed work schedule where you could work nine hours a day for nine days and then um, have the 10th day to yourself. So I had every other Friday off. Sometimes I got it, sometimes I didn't. Um, and the only reason I could do that was because my husband supported me. He got home, his office, his office was closer to our house than mine was, and he got home in time to give our children dinner, and then we would eat dinner when I got home. But on those Fridays off, um, when my kids were especially little, I would go into their classrooms and volunteer. Uh, and I love that because I could see how they were doing and how they were learning compared to their peers. Um, and then when they got too old where the teachers didn't want you in the classroom anymore. I took that time for myself. Those are the times that I renewed my energy, whatever that was, whether I exercised, whether I got a massage, whether I uh, got my nails done, whether I slept, whether I read a book, but that was my time. And I love those days because I was here those Friday afternoons when my kids came home from work. All right. And it, it also goes back to the company policies again. Right, uh, and I think if the companies and businesses have turned, um, have decided to support women more uh, and parents more, uh, they would uh, really be able to achieve a lot. Exactly, um, and I would advise women um, when they can to look for companies in which to work that have progressive HR practices and that have progressive management. And I think it's a great advice because right now it's um, a lot easier to Google and uh, to see the reviews of the employers online. Exactly. There's so many studies out there on, on the best, the best organizations for, in which, uh, for women to work. Yes. I think uh, it's amazing um, how a success can sometimes uh, become toxic like 
and affect the other parts of your life. So I'm, I'm very happy for you as well that you have um, been able to uh, uh, live uh, a happy life and, and build a successful career. Thank um, you. I know you have a husband and the two kids that uh, have grown up. So that's very, uh, very nice. Um, and it's all uh, about challenges. And I think people, people need to, to realize that if you have, you know, a two parent working family with young children and both parents are working 60 hours a week, there's a period of time that you go through that is just survival mode. And sadly, I think a lot of marriages fall apart because of it, but you, you have to keep the end in mind and realize you're going to get through this. Um, you always have options. You can make changes if you need to um, and, and keep sight of the big picture. Right. And, and then you can have it all, but in different phases of your life. Exactly. Right. That's exactly right. At least in my experience. And especially um, now that you've retired, uh, I'm sure you're still um, doing other things that uh, you've been um, postponing. Uh, so uh, I'm wondering what keeps you busy these days. <laughs> well, you know, I retired two years ago and I still had teenagers at home. So my life filled in very, very quickly, which was, which was surprising to me. I, I don't know why, but it was. So I'm sending both of my children off to college this fall. So I'll be an empty nester for the first time. Um, but given COVID, unfortunately, they may be, you know, unfortunately with COVID, they may be back sooner than I realized. Um, we're, you know, we're in such uncertain times right now. Um, my husband is still working, uh, and I hope we can have more time and enjoy some of the activities we were able to do before we focused on raising our children. Things like biking, golfing, cooking, gardening, just being together. Um, in addition, one fun thing I've been doing is writing a book over the last several years about experience I had with one of my children who was quite ill as a child and is left with some mild learning differences. So um, it's currently with the publisher and should come out this fall. However, it's written under a pseudonym to protect my child's identity. So I don't, we're going we're gonna to get into much discussion on that today. Um, and before I retired, I went back to school in the evenings to become accredited in life coaching. So my goal is, when my book comes out, to mentor other parents with children with special needs. But I'm also looking forward to mentoring career women who either want to make a change in their career, maybe take a different path that are not sure how to do that or need a little support, um, or women who need help finding balance in their current positions. Uh, I've already coached several women in making effective change in their life and they're much happier than they, than they once were. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where I'm going. That's what I have plans to do right now. Great, exciting. And I think Open School of Business is the right place for you um, to find the mentoring, um, to find your mentoring clients and, and uh, uh, start this coaching um, business. Uh, I've always seen a coach figure in you, so I'm very happy that um, you get to do what you're very natural at. Oh, um, thank you so much, and I, and I appreciate you introducing me to the Open School of Business. When you asked me to do this interview, um, it was certainly not my goal. 
um, to talk about this, but now that we have the opportunity, if there are women out there that do need a little support and would like to talk to me, I'm be happy to, to speak with them. Great. So if anyone in our audience would like to reach out to you, how may they contact you? Well, I think initially to start, they can reach me by email at J as in joy, T, Riley, R-I-L-E-Y, 20, at gmail.com. And let me say that one more time. It's J is in joy, T is in Tom, Riley, R-I-L-E-Y, 20, uh, at gmail.com. Oh, thank you so much for this. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope that our audience gets a lot of direction from this uh, conversation. Uh, I hope uh, your book comes out soon and uh, you start your uh, new business as a, a coach and uh, help other families to achieve balance and success and happiness. Thank you so much, Arnar. Anar, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful catching up with you and I appreciate the opportunity.